Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. This is Jen from Yardley, Pennsylvania. Do what the cool kids do and get exclusive podcasts and more at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, just like I do. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, for years, young women have been murdered and disappeared in a Mexican border town. Is it the work of a serial killer or part of a larger conspiracy? We'll talk about the podcast Forgotten Women of Juarez. Then, a Pentecostal preacher is accused of trying to kill his wife with a serpent. We'll review HBO Max's Alabama Snake. Join me to get that done and more as my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Merry Christmas, Rebecca. Happy holidays, Kevin. Happy holidays. It's the war on the holidays, Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified pet investigator, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello. Yeah, I have a big cat case I'm going to be going out to learn more about this weekend. Cannot wait. Maybe we can talk about that in the after show. Mm. Mm -hmm. And finally with us is our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy and host of the Strange Arrivals podcast with iHeartMedia and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. How's everyone doing? I know that we always talk about weather on this podcast, which is boring and off topic. Is it not so cold out? Toby, go. Um, yeah, it's pretty cold, and we're about to get a foot of snow. So. Yes, it's so exciting. Right, Laura? It's cold enough to freeze your titties off, Rebecca. Wow. <laughs> Is that what happened to me? It's pretty cold. <laughs> Kevin, how are you doing? Are you staying warm? I'm staying warm, Rebecca. Yeah. Nothing like the bright, hot lights in this studio that just get hotter the longer we talk. It's insane. We use hot water bottles in our bed because I secretly live in 1875. Mm -hmm. um, And I just got these um, (laughs) Harris Tweed covers for the hot water bottles. And yesterday, Kevin was complaining the heat was not dispersing quickly enough through the Harris Tweed. That is how cold it is in New Hampshire right now. (laughs) So, yes. That is our lifestyle, and thus ends the weather report for this week. Should we start a podcast now? Yeah. All right, let's get it done. Leading off. Right across the border from where we stood, there were young women who worked in American-owned factories in the Mexican city of Ciudad Juarez. And they were being killed with horrific brutality. The victims were often found half-naked, dumped in the desert. Some were found in mass graves with strange symbols left on their bodies. 
Journalists Oz Walashin and Monica Ortiz Uribe investigate a string of femicides in a Mexican border town dating back to the 1990s, which claimed the lives of hundreds of women. The crimes all have the hallmarks of a serial killer and attract the attention of the FBI in El Paso. There is a real possibility that an American or someone who is residing on our side of the border is conducting these murders. But in a city where drug cartels control everything, including the police, why do the Mexicans show so little interest in solving the cases? Why have scapegoats been coerced into confessions? Were the women snatched by a psychotic killer or were they targeted by a network of people who knew where to find them and knew they could get away with it? The young ladies were putting their personal data into the questionnaires and their pictures were taken. So it became very easy for someone at another end whoever this information was being forwarded to, to let this operate as a catalog. Forgotten, Women of Juarez takes us from the Mexican streets and American factories where the victims lived and worked to the cops, attorneys and journalists on both sides of the border who are threatened for seeking answers. The podcast explores how organized crime and a corrupt government aren't just stifling the investigation into the deaths, but how they might also be taking part in them. Now, spoiler alert, we will be talking about significant plot points from Forgotten Women of Juarez. So if you want to remain spoiler free and just get our thumbs up or thumbs down review, go to the estimated time code in our show notes. Toby Ball, do you remember Serial Season 2, how Sarah Koenig said in Episode 1, like, we're going to start here, but then we're going to be zooming out? Yes. I personally feel like Forgotten the Women of Juarez is the most zoomy outy of any podcast we've ever listened to. What do you think of this podcast that starts with one victim and going to visit her mother and talking about what happened to her and ends with the role of global capitalism and the global economy and, and international banking and American corporate greed in the final episode. Like, that is quite a zoom out, right? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I, I guess I came into it knowing a little bit about the fact that there were, you know, scores of murdered women in Juarez. And so I knew it was going to obviously expand from there. And I think what the what the podcast does really well is to give you the context in which all this stuff happens and, and why that makes it so difficult to even really investigate, which is sort of this confluence of a lot of money, both legal and illegal, in the, in the form of uh, American factories, and then also the drug trade, but, you know, capitalism, essentially, and that along with you know, these very, very poor workers hmm. who go from just very difficult conditions to, you know, they, they describe these these factories where they work as being like the safest place that they will be. So what's, you know, what's the consequence of that? And, and, and one of them is, is clearly that the lives of the workers and particularly these young women just don't seem to have much value within the system. Kevin, what do you think of the big zoom out that we get in the podcast? I hadn't thought of it as a zoom out like you did in it, but you know, you did a good job explaining that. I, I just sort of felt like it just took the whole story from one point and brought it all the way back around again. Yeah. In a very uh, good way. Because it does start like with, you know, the crime. 
And it does have like all the hallmarks of a serial killer case. And so your mindset is there. Like, okay, what's going on? Juarez has, you know, this very bad reputation as a drug cartel city. And it's like, that's the backdrop for this serial killer story. And it took me sort of halfway through this to real before I gave up on the idea, no, this isn't a serial killer. But it goes from, you know, some of the crimes and the disappearances of women to the plights of them as low-paid laborers. And then you look at the local police and then the government corruption. And then you get to the corporate culpability and then right back to the, the cartels in the beginning. And, yeah. then, and then in the story-wise, you go back to the, you know, that, that family so I, I just thought it was a really great way of sort of waltzing the listener away from what the obvious thing is. Right. Right? It's like if you're going to say, people are dying mysteriously in Chernobyl. Well, I mean, it's like you, you immediately go, well, could it be the radiation from the... But if they like set you off believing that, no, that's just the backdrop. Yeah. And, and not in a um, in an unfair way. Yeah. But just sort of placing it there and... I was really impressed with sort of the way they told the story, and they told it very in-depth. I have a follow-up for you, because I kept finding myself thinking this. It does start with a serial killer teaser, which I remember being Mm -hmm. a lot in the media at the time, which was like, is this a serial killer? You know, the women were cut. They had all these, like, markings on them. Uh, They were targeted. Yeah, Yeah. all that stuff. They were hunted, yeah. So do you think – it's so funny because – the myth of the serial killer, I mean, I don't say the myth, there are serial killers, but there's sort of like this also like pop culture myth of serial killers. And the probable explanations, which I believe there's more than one, which we'll talk about. Like, I, I don't think it's just one thing. I think it might be multiple things. The myth of the serial killer is fantastical and rare, yet for some reason that's almost easier to believe than the idea of what's actually going on, which is like systemic predation. Did you find yourself thinking like, I want it to be a serial killer, not because that's better, but because that's easier to cope with? Yeah, I didn't want to believe in a big conspiracy. Right. Right. You know, sort of Occam's razor, sort of the, you know, the simplest solution is probably, you know, the most likely. And so the idea that this was the work of a killer or maybe separate killers working in tandem or not, as opposed to the idea that... The police um, are in on it and everyone's the, in on right, it. Right. Yeah. The cartels control the police and that in the end, it's just a big sport where I- instead of a bunch of stockbrokers going to the strip club, the cartel celebrates by kidnapping women, having violent sex with them, killing them, and then burying them in mass graves. The cartel and also these corporate and other Well, yeah, I, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I'm still not like convinced that Lee Iacocca or whoever else was involved in a murder at a snuff party. Right. But, you know, it's certainly every there's a lot. It could be all of these things. It could be more than one. It's so yeah. funny you talk about Occam's Razor. I feel like this podcast does a good job of disabusing our notion of Occam's Razor. For us, mm-hmm. it's a serial killer here in our comfortable New Hampshire home. In Juarez, the Occam's Razor is cartels and powerful rich men. That's yeah, the Occam's yep. Razor there. So, Laura, journalism is front and center in this podcast. We have many journalists involved in it, uh, but the two that are front and center are Monica and, of course, Diane Washington Valdez. And we hear about their experience reporting on this story. And the story that really sticks out with me is this idea that, like, You wear cowboy boots every day because they're your favorite shoes because you walk around in the sand and you don't want to get sand, you know, inside your socks. You always wear these cowboy boots. 
But then you've been reporting on the story so long and you've been threatened so much that you think. But I would think twice about putting those cowboy boots on because I would think, shoot, what if someone stuck me into the back of their trunk? It would be very uncomfortable to be wearing these cowboy boots stuffed in somebody's trunk. That was one really stellar, stunning detail. But what did you think just sort of about the role of journalism in this podcast, the central role that journalism had in this story of taking it from maybe serial killer to very clearly probably something else? Yeah. So, you know, it really, as I was listening to this, you know, we've had cutbacks at our local paper. We've been seeing newspapers around the country laying off employees. And I think listening to this, I was just struck by the role that journalists can play in bringing something like this to the forefront when, as you're listening to this, even the devil's lawyer couldn't do something about it and decided to go to the media to get the story out there. But I was really just listening to this thinking, this is absolutely freaking terrifying what these reporters are going through to get the story, knowing they're in danger, knowing they're at risk, knowing they're not safe, but still so dedicated to making sure that that story gets out there. And I was, I mean, the other one we didn't, that there was the man, um, Alfredo, and the story of his that really, I was just like, holy crap, was, you know, when he is basically marked and he knows he needs to get back across the border into the U.S. And he's like running and he doesn't know where to go. And he goes to this lawyer's office and basically like hides in the back of his vehicle to get back out. You know, all these things are going through my mind. And I'm also thinking, what if Dante's in on this? What if he's not taking me to the bridge? What if he's taking me somewhere? What if he's taking me to the cops? And then I see him on the phone and he's, he just sounds so nonchalant. It's just another normal day. I just felt the terror that they must feel when they know I'm doing my job, but there are eyes all around. I think that was the thing that struck me as like, even when they're there reporting and they're maybe not aware of who knows they're there, somebody's always watching them. Somebody knows they're there. Somebody knows what they're doing. And it's different than being a war. I mean, like you've got like war correspondents and they kind of know the danger of going to war. But this is, to me, was just so terrifying knowing that anywhere you turn, somebody could actually be the enemy and knowing that the police were not safe to go to. I mean, that was the other thing is like, so you're there and you need help. You can't even go to the freaking police. So it was it was pretty terrifying. But I think, you know, when you learn that this all happened, I mean, some of this was going back to like, was it 2003 when one of them started reporting? A long time. Yeah. That this story has been in the works. Just amazing. Yeah. I just keep thinking, Kevin, about the fact that all of their sources kept getting killed. The devil's yeah. lawyer was killed. The two lawyers, the the father and son who were defending the bus driver, the son was murdered. They called it an assassination. And then later we find out the father was also killed. The journalists become very reliable narrators in this story, right? Yeah, I was just going to say the uh, the paranoia quotient is very high among the people in the uh, in the podcast. Remember, they were like went down to Juarez and they're walking on is it Mina Street, and they're like, oh, over there you've got uh, you know. People are looking out. And it, it, the lookouts. It, yeah. It just seemed like they certainly felt like all eyes were always on them, and there were these nefarious forces at work. That's a guy that is trying to spook us. He's yeah. mimicking a gun with his hand. Yeah. Should we get out of here, do you think? Early on, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, this is serious. Um, you know, it's a dangerous place, but... 
you sort of that whole paranoia just builds up in the listener too as you go along. But you're right, Laura's right that thank God for journalists because they seem to be the only ones doing like real investigations that aren't tainted by corruption. Until they don't. Because they're too scared. Until they're too scared to I keep mean, going. Yeah. Diana Washington is an incredible character. Monica and Oz talked to her. She's this woman who admits her book sucked because she just wanted to finish it quickly and be done with the story. Her friend at the newspaper was murdered, you know, like her friend and reporting partner. Like, she was threatened over and over and over again. I mean, the guy from Dallas, from the Dallas, was the Dallas Morning News, the newspaper mm-hmm. there? Like, he was doing the story. Dallas is not cl- super close, to, as close to Juarez, obviously, as El Paso. But he was being threatened. I don't know. Toby, I mean, we just listened to, and I, I ranked as one of the best podcasts from last year, Canary, which is kind of all about how hard it is for a reporter to actually get to the bottom of or verify facts in a story. Doesn't this podcast take that idea to a whole new level? Uh, yeah. Well, because, A, I don't think anybody in Canary was worried about getting killed. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, you know, it's I, the whole thing is kind of a it's a messy story. I mean, they lay it out pretty well to show you how difficult it is to kind of get a handle on what's going on and the different things that it could be. <laughs> it's kind of a stunning thing in and of itself that you've got all these different forces that you could potentially think of as being the force that would do these terrible things and then kill all these women. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I found it very compelling. It makes Juarez seem like such a complicated place and not in a good way. Yeah. Kevin, there's a whole law enforcement aspect of this podcast that I really like. I think one of the strongest aspects of this podcast is that they start with victims, but they also are completely including the voice of law enforcement. There's that wonderful character, Oscar Minor, the uh, medical examiner who you know was in and then he was out, but he like secretly kept all the files because yeah. he knew they'd be corrupted. But they also have this entire FBI storyline. There's like the previous second in command at the El Paso FBI. But then there's this very complicated story about Hardrick Crawford, who was the agent in charge, the AIC, of the El Paso Bureau, who came in. He was chosen because he was an outsider. He didn't want the job. He chose to be outspoken about the murders. He called them out for being like horrible crimes. He called the Mexican authorities out for not wanting to solve them. Then he finds himself in a situation where he is taken down. And the reporting in the podcast suggests that either he made bad decisions or was maybe walking the line of being corrupt or the State Department and or the corporate powers that be took him down on purpose because he was bringing attention to the American businesses in Mexico and their culpability in these crimes. That was a complicated story. I'm curious to know what you think of him and what you think of that storyline. Well, I did like his passion for the victims. You know, it's a crime in Mexico, but he definitely acknowledged that there is an American interest in this case. Certainly that, you know, Americans have have resources that the Mexicans don't. Um, that could help solve the case, whether it's, you know, behavioral profilers or DNA testing or, you know, advanced forensics. 
But you end up finding out that, you know, the Mexican police, you know, self-sabotage the scene. You know, there's a great story about... Yeah, about the rolling over the body and there are fresh cigarette butts, you know, underneath the body. And it's like they're continuing to sabotage the crime scenes because they really don't want them to be solved. And, you know, you find out later, yeah, it's because the cartels have an interest in these crimes. So... His passion for that is really interesting. I I mean, I think in the end, he should have seen, you know, the end of his time there coming because he did make some poor decisions, which included his wife taking a job in Mexico at a racetrack that's run by the cartel. Yeah. It was not a good look at all. Whether or not it was innocent or or not. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure they didn't get into it whether somebody from the racetrack approached her and said, how would you like to, you know, it's Sounds just, like that's what happened, yeah. Yeah, it just, it's, it, it was very naive to think that that wasn't going to be problematic and that he was socializing with the cardinal who, I mean, even the church is corrupt and with the cartels and, the, you know, whatever. But if he wants to say, well, you know, I think I, I was, I scared people at the State Department. Yeah, I'm sure there were people who didn't like the PR aspect of it, but he's also the FBI talking about doing, is you know, is one thing. If they really, you know, had a concern, they wouldn't have him doing things, right? Yeah. Investigating. I've, so I've I think he just he just was hoisted by his own petard. I'm just saying, I think that partially is true, but I also don't understand how anybody can know what they know in 2020 and not believe, at least a little bit, that it could have been someone in power in the United States, like a corporate type who's the CEO of GE or Lear or one of these huge companies that didn't call their senator, who's also their best friend, and say, hey, this guy's making us look really bad. Do something about it. To me, it's not difficult to draw those lines, especially knowing what we know about how corruption works. I'm not saying that's definitely what happened, but I also want to believe he wouldn't be giving interviews about this if there were things to trace to him that were like, no, you were corrupt. We can see this $200,000 in your bank account. It's not like that stuff was completely absent. He was taken down. Toby, I'm curious what you think about that. Well, you know, I don't know if he was in reality corrupt, but I do think like if you're assessing his position after his wife takes that spot, that it does seem as though he becomes corruptible. Yeah. So I think, you know. Or easy to just, blame, right? Easy to yeah, pin it's a, it's a, it's a It's a security concern, yeah. I think. So whether you go to jail for it or just get shipped out of El Paso, once she took that job, it seemed like that was kind of an untenable position. Yeah. That was a mistake, even if it was not on purpose. Yeah. It, it surprises me that he would be that naive and his explanation for it seemed again it's kind of you're he's leaning on you believing that he could be either naive or so pure as a driven snow that he can't imagine anybody thinking that he would do something wrong by doing that i i don't know i when i was listening to him like dude that's just not this just doesn't seem like a good choice i love the way the podcast handled it though i love the way they had his friend frank and being like i went to his house and i was like what the fuck they were very even-handed with that story which i really appreciated i tend to be more on the side of like his crawford's sense i mean he made missteps which he didn't admit which he should have admitted that he made like clear missteps i tend to believe he was taken down only because there's nothing in the story that make me disbelieve it laura what do you think 
Well, I was going to say the setup, I think, set him up as being sort of naive and maybe just poor judgment because the setup was that like my wife has always been in my shadow and and I've been this big FBI guy or whatever. And, and then she had an opportunity. So like I let her take it sort of thing. I just felt like that when that was the lead into it, I felt like you should have known better. Yeah. It's a bad look. Yes, it was. It didn't look good, but I kind of I tend to agree with you, Rebecca. I don't think necessarily that he was corrupt. I think that he was didn't use good judgment and he was a problem for them. I mean, I think I guess based on everything we heard in this podcast about the corruption, which is everywhere, apparently. I mean, it was astounding just on every level. I would be more inclined to believe that somebody within that corrupt system saw him as a threat and found a way to take him out. Laura, I have a quick question for you and then a real question for you. Okay. Like me, were you super pissed that any job would turn someone away from their shift for being two minutes late? (laughs) Not a podcast. That is some inhumane ass working conditions. (laughs) By the way, the Lear company, I was waiting. I like the the first when they first said that, I was like, I want to know what company that was. Later they said it was Lear. All I could think was there's an American company with a factory, a Makilo, they're called. And their regular practices, if you're two minutes late, you just can't work that day. What the actual fuck? It's control. Yeah. I, I feel like control was such a central theme in here, like control of this male-dominated domi- yeah. yes, society and crimes and everything. But two minutes, I'm like, oh, my gosh. I mean, this sounds like conversations we have in our house where I'm like, when you're in the real world, if you're late to work, like you are to school, you're going to get fired. But two minutes is like... I could see that if you're working at some sort of a federal government contract job or you have like high security, but not in this case. All right. So, Laura, my other question for you that I want to go like talk to everybody about is I think that it's really hard when a story like this that's so sweeping and there are hundreds and hundreds of victims It is very hard to actually put a face and voice to victims when the victims are so many and the crimes are so, like, varied. I mean, they have a lot in common, but they're also, like, a lot of different crimes, bodies in different places, different kinds of, you know, situations. I think this podcast dealt extremely well with telling victim stories and getting into sort of the life and families of the victims. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that going into this, this podcast had a leg up because such extensive relationship making reporting type work had already been done by the three journalists that are really, you know, the main sources in terms of telling the story and narrating what they'd done. So they had existing relationships with the families of some of these victims. But I think that the story that really struck me was the family that we're following of the victim where there were, you know, the multiple siblings and we're hearing from the mother and we learn about how the father took his own life. And that was awful. And it was just, I think, when you're in this situation and you're hearing that it doesn't sound like there's going to be justice. It's nobody, like the police are not even there to help you. Like these women, these these young women, these girls that have been murdered are, you know, people that they're thinking nobody's going to actually demand justice for. So 
when you hear this story about the father reaching that point, I think that really just drove home just this feeling of helplessness that the families of the victims feel in the face of what was going on. Toby, it's a difficult needle of thread, right? You're telling a story about globalism, NAFTA, mass, mass graves, and, you know, this sweeping set of crimes took a, a, a place across decades. And I found myself thinking, like, this is a hard needle to thread, making it personal. Do you think the podcast succeeded in that regard? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I think they did a really good job. You know, the individual stories were poignant and, and devastating. And I, th- I think that's an important thing to do, too. Because, again, I mean, I think part of the issue is that these young women are seen as anonymous. So I think it was really important. I, I mean, I don't think you can honor all of them, but you you honor them through examples. I'm pretty sure that Roberto Bolano, he's a Chilean author who he died a number of years ago, but got really hit. But he's got a book, I think it's called 2066. And I think one of the chapters is just about all of the women who at that point had, had been killed in Juarez. Yeah. When I take a look at this podcast... And think about how complicated the story is and, you know, what they were trying to do in the course of, you know, 10 episodes. It it seems very daunting. And I I just think they do it incredibly well. Yeah. It's really ambitious, right, Kevin? It starts small. I mean, I think about even the episode with police corruption and like the scapegoating of those two bus drivers. Oh that my God. could have been its own yeah. podcast, right? Yeah, and they ended up doing it in one episode. Yeah. I, Toby used a word that like just made a lot of stuff click for me. We talked about how complicated yeah. this story is. And I think less was done in the nobody zone. But like I could follow Women of Juarez a lot better. And I don't I think it has just sort of just the storytelling style and the things that they got into and the nature of the story. The writing. The writing and the different people involved, it really you know held my attention, yeah. and I was. It, it is a very complicated story. Yeah, it isn't. It would be nice if it were just a serial killer. We could get into that, but having it go in all these different directions, it's like wow, this is really complicated. I just want to ask you one quick question before we do our reviews, Kevin. Yeah. It occurred to me listening to like I mean I listened to all of it and I kept thinking this, but then I really realized it like in episode eight or nine. Monica is billed as the co-host. Mm-hmm. It's actually a reporter two-way with her in many ways. And the and the, the the structure of the podcast reminds me a lot of what's the Kim Goldman podcast, the OJ one, um, where she talks about yeah. her sister's murder. Um, it reminds me a lot of that podcast where she's the primary source. But she's not reading narration on a, off a script. She's being asked questions by the host. And I'm just curious. I found that effective. I was also very glad that she was given, like, top billing on the show when clearly she was not writing the narration or reading the narration. She was basically, like, a subject of the narration. Do you think the structure of this worked, I guess, is what I'm asking you? Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't have listed her as, you know, number two. But this she introduces Oz. herself in the Copen and Crow. Right. I mean, yeah. Oz is sort of, okay, so she's like, there's like one in 1A. Yeah. But yeah, she is not only a reporter host who's pulling information out from others, but she's also in a position where she can add to Exposition. the discussion yeah. her own stories. And then she also brings in Diana, who's like the authority. The badass. On this, you know, yeah. uh, on, on this case. And then 
you know, other journalists. It just it, it was really interesting um, to just sort of see this whole thing laid out. And and for me to go from okay, you know, who's the killer? Who's the killer? To eventually getting around to like everybody else, like no, this actually is something bigger and more complicated. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know. Should they check out Forgotten Women of Juarez? The podcast is totally out. There are 10 episodes plus bonus episodes available for listening right now. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down for Forgotten Women of Juarez. I'm going thumbs up on this. Now, I will say we listened to this in a pretty short time frame because of our schedule for this podcast. So I would suggest, you know, spreading out your listening so you could really kind of think about it between episodes because it was 10 episodes. But I think, you know, you go in thinking that this story is going to be, you know, who did this and why did they do this? And is there justice? Is somebody going to be held responsible? And I think at the end of this, it became more of sort of a philosophical question for me. It was more like sort of bearing witness to what happened to the women in this podcast. And I think this is really timely and it's extremely well reported and it really highlights the value of good journalism, which I feel like we need to shout out anytime we can with newsrooms and news organizations downsizing around the country. This story is an example of the power of journalism. And I think based on that, that just really, for me, gave it a big thumbs up. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Forgotten Women of Juarez? Well, I'm going to echo Lara about having to listen to it too fast because it is, I mean, it's, it's a very complex podcast. There's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of forces at play. I think it it was remarkably good. It's hard not to be kind of discouraged just about the way global capitalism, I I guess. I mean, I I kind of feel like this is a uh, specific particular story, but it's sort of emblematic of situations that I think occur around the world, not with this many deaths, but with that kind of attitude towards the lives of people in, in, in poorer countries. So there's there's just a lot to think about. But I yeah, I highly recommend it. Kevin Flynn. I'm going thumbs up. This was a, a story that you know started off small and did a great job of bringing all the other elements that you know were teased out. It's called Forgotten Women of Juarez. It could just be called Juarez, like with a big exclamation point after, right? I can see the big bold letters. Because it really is about this community in a way that you're not like uh, all hokey, like we're going to do something that's going to show like what this town is all about. It's really about how this city is intertwined with these crimes and whether or not there can be justice or whether or not it can even be stopped. And one of the later episodes they make the point about holding powerful men accountable. Yeah. And you can't do that in the U.S. It's so difficult. Imagine how it is in Mexico. Right. When the all the cards are stacked against you. So it's not what I thought it was going to be, but it, it certainly is a fantastic achievement. So thumbs up. Yeah, I loved this podcast. And just like Laura, I wish I had not listened to the whole thing in a week. It just felt too condensed and I didn't need time to think. I mean, I that's found nobody else's problem. No, that's our that's crime a, writers. That's an us thing. <laughs> that's an us thing, not a podcast makers thing. I have found myself since finishing this podcast walking around my house 
and looking at everything in my home and my car and my closet thinking like, what do I own that was touched by someone in Juarez? You know, whether it's the pocket of my jeans, as they say, or the the sensor that makes the gear shift in my car work or the switch on my blender Everything we do make touch, at some point, some piece of it came through Juarez. And I just kind of found myself thinking, like, is a woman that's life is whose life is in jeopardy or who died, possibly, somebody who was involved in the making of my blender, which sounds, it sounds like, like crazy, except the podcast does take you there. It's the culpability of capitalism pretty much directly leads to the murders and rapes of hundreds and hundreds of women. I have two only tiny criticisms of the podcast. One is I feel like the scope of the story is a perfect onion, beautifully told. I don't necessarily feel like as close as they got to the victims, like I really did want to know how many, how many graves, how many people, what is the actual scope of the crime. It's a little bit of missing piece there. My only other tiny production criticism is that whoever is editing the uh, speech tracking on this podcast, don't worry about the ums and don't paste everything over with breaths. There's just too much cleaning up that you can actually hear. That is a very, very tiny quibble in an otherwise really outstanding achievement. I really recommend Forgotten Women of Juarez. And I'm hoping, Kevin, I know you said Juarez could have been the title. I'm hoping that Forgotten will be a series and there will be another story as sweeping and great as this. Oz, Monica... Mwah. Great job for me. Thumbs up for Forgotten Women of Juarez. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. What does that mean, Kevin? Business time. We're here in the business section as we can connote from that business music. Kevin, what is happening on the Crime Writers on After Show for our Patreon listeners right now? I don't know. We haven't talked about it. I guess we're going to get into... Laura's going to give us an update on Felix the Cat. Oh, Felix. We have a listener saying, whatever happened to Felix? And so Laura will bring us an update. I would also like to know, I know that all of you, including me are watching, listening to uh, other books, other TV shows, other podcasts. 
We're about to embark on a break. Our listeners might not know this, but we're not going to be here next week making this podcast. It is time for us we'll to do... We'll have a classic episode, though. Oh, we will? Yeah, sure. All right. It's time for us to go on our annual live holiday break, though. So... I'm sure we're all going to be checking out or have been checking out new things. We're going to talk about that in the after show as well. Kevin, what else is happening on our Patreon right now? Uh, Right now you can listen to part two of Lara Bricker's interview with Carol Carol Baskin. Baskin. Meow. Uh, By the time we're back, uh, we will have a new episode of Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club. You mean Toby Ball's Ball's Deep Dive Dive Book Club. Yes, exactly. Toby, tell us what you've got coming up. Uh, We are reviewing or discussing uh, a book called The Third Rainbow Girl. This is my Appalachia week. It's about a a double murder in uh, West Virginia in the early 1980s, uh, but is also really about sort of the, the culture of this very poor Appalachian area where the author spends quite a bit of time uh, basically as a social worker and she learns about this case. So it's kind of a, a back and forth between the true crime and sort of her experience there, which is, uh, you know, it's a format I'm not always that crazy about, but I think she does pretty well. But I think it's going to be a pretty uh, interesting discussion. Sarah D. Bunting Ooh. will be there. And Julia Lowry Henderson. What so, a great series. What a great set of guests. Jesus Christ. I know. We're getting A-listers for your book club, for the Balls Deep Dive Book Club podcast. I'm really impressed. We also have a new episode of Married with Podcast. Yes, yeah, it's very personal. And uh, it's not too late for patrons to sign up for the Crime Writers on Holiday Party. We're going to be doing it on uh, Crowdcast. You remember over the summer we do these have uh, drinks after work with Kevin. Yes. On the, on the, the computer screen, we bring in people on, on the, their computer screen and we, you know, we move things around and okay, talk to everybody. Stop referring to that. In the Dark did a holiday party. We're doing what they did. It's going to be just as no, cool. We're doing it better. <laughs> Can I come? Yes. How yeah. do people get into the uh, Crime Raiders on Holiday Party? How do they get there? You got to join Patreon. So go to uh, patreon.com slash partners in crime media. What level do you have to be at to get into our holiday party? I'm just curious. It's open to all patrons. Really? Yeah. So even if you're like $5 a month, you get into our holiday party? $5 a month is the exclusive content. Nice. Call. So yes. Nice. So basically, like, you could join for a month and then quit. Right. And, <laughs> and I, I will say also... Uh, we're running a special with Patreon that if you uh, sign up or switch your subscription from monthly to annually, if you do an annual membership, uh, you'll get 10% off and you will get a telephone call from one of the four of us. Probably Kevin. Well, everybody's been doing it. <laughs> no, and I will tell you, speaking of holiday parties, I spoke with uh, Michelle Womble today and she was making a dark chocolate peppermint martini for the holidays nice. for a party she was going to with her husband on Zoom. So maybe Gotta we make can make one. that. Yeah, I got the recipe. So if you want to uh, do it. <laughs> nice. Nice. Excellent. Yes, I've become best friends with people that I call Kevin. Have you become best friends with people that you've called? I would say best friends, but we've I had a lot of great conversations. Nice. and I keep asking people whether we should get rid of Toby, and they say no. Nobody wants to get rid of Toby. <laughs> Start convincing people. Toby, just, who do just you keep ask asking. people? Toby, just keep you, asking. Like, what questions do you ask our listeners, Toby? Are you like, should the podcast get rid of me? I'm just curious. <laughs> I just say, would you just listen to it if it was just me? Yeah. If it was just me. <laughs> Crime like, writer? Yes. Crime writer. They're like, yes, it's called Strange Arrivals, and it was a hit uh, podcast yeah, right. that I listened to. Yes. <laughs> 
Um, yeah. I don't. I don't ask those kinds of questions. Huh. I have very pleasant conversations about all kinds of stuff. Me too. Actually, I, I mostly questions. talk about TV with people. I, I all talk right, about so. Pets. So, Kevin, uh, uh, who, <laughs> might I ask? We played a type, in other words. Exactly. We all played a type for characters. I'm like, what are you watching? What are you drinking? Toby's like, what are you reading? Lara's like, who's your cat? Well, Kevin's like, will you be my best friend? <laughs> Nobody I talked to had cats. And today, Buddy the dog interrupted my call because he had been eating cat litter again. So Nice. Uh, you get okay. real-life Bricker household experience when I talk to you. Laura, my beautiful puppy Briscoe ate half a dead bird on our walk this morning. So there was that. Ew. All right, Kevin, uh, before we move on, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Jennifer Carr and Karen McClellan. Bless you. Bless you guys. And, and we're both wonderful to speak to as well. Thank you to everybody who supports us on Patreon. You can get the Crime Writers on After Show right now at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, as well as all that other content including Toby's podcast, Laura's podcast, Meredith's podcast. It's all awesome. Head on over right now to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. And thank you for enduring. I talked to someone today who lives down the street from my sister. Oh, my God. In Massachusetts? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, Does she also see Benjamin Bratt in the grocery store? No, she doesn't. She doesn't know Benjamin Bratt lives in that town. That's crazy. I had to explain it to her. Literally down the street? Yeah. That's amazing. Is she going to go like stalk your sister now? told her not to do that. <laughs> and Would you recognize Benjamin Bratt if he was in the grocery store? A hundred percent. Are you fucking kidding me, Toby? Listen, I know you're celebrity blonde, They're but the tall, rest of America Peruvian is Peruvian drink of water, you bet. <laughs> to- Toby's celebrity blind. Unless oh, it was yeah. like Patrick Radden Keefe, he would have no idea who it was. <laughs> and thus ends the business section. Kevin, should I fade that music out right now? If it's still playing. It's still playing. I've looped it. All right, fading it out. Moving on. But out of all of my experiences, there is one that stands out from all the rest. This story is a story of the serpent and the spirit. In 1991, EMTs responding to a call for a snake bite discovered a woman with a disturbing tail. She claimed her jealous husband had tried to kill her with the rattlesnakes he used in his Pentecostal church services. It was black, the skin was starting to die. That's when I got real concerned because that gets in her bloodstream, it can go to your heart. We've got to get this girl over there in a hurry. After his conviction, Glenn Summerford told his life story to an Appalachian folklorist. In the HBO Max documentary, Alabama Snake, we see Summerford's hard-knock, hard-drinking life leading up to him fashioning the serpents he used in his religious services as weapons against his wife. The man was put on trial not for what he did, but for what he stands for, for serpent handling, the word of God. And it is the word of God. From the filmmakers behind McMillions and the legend of Cocaine Island, Alabama Snake explores Summerford's backstory, his incredible crime, and the world of Pentecostal ministry and its relationship with snakes. But does it balance what's interesting about those things to create a memorable story? Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points for Alabama Snake. So to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. Kevin Flynn. Yeah. I feel like I had a dream where I watched a documentary about snakes Uh in Alabama and 
Pentecostal stuff. Was that a dream or was that a real documentary? It might have been a dream for you because I think you fell asleep on the couch. <laughs> but this whole thing end. was very dreamy, right? The way that it's made? It, yeah, it was. That's a good way of putting it. It has a certain style to it. I was reminded an awful lot, before I knew who the um, the documentarians were, I was reminded an awful lot of The Legend of Cocaine Island. Not just because they had people doing their own reenactments, which I'd only other seen in that, but there there was, yeah, sort of this um, you know, way of telling the story that was was very familiar in the in the way that they did it. it does share some of its stylistic DNA, although not as tongue in cheek as Cocaine Island was. But I remember how that one opened up, and it was like you know the difference between a northern fairy tale and a southern fairy tale, and it's. Northern fairy tale starts off once upon a time. Southern fairy fairy tale starts off. You ain't gonna believe this shit. Yeah, you ain't gonna believe this shit. Was a little bit of how this this started off. The DNA between this and Cocaine Island are that the actual people involved in the story do recreations in the show, which is crazy because they're way too old. They only yeah they only did the EMTs were the only ones who did that. <laughs> Toby, I'm just curious about your stylistic notes on this documentary because. Like I said, and I'm standing by it, I either felt like I ate a bunch of edibles and then watched it or had a dream (laughs) that I watched a documentary about something with snakes and snake bites and religion. Toby, what do you think about the style of this whole thing? It's not really my cup of tea, I guess. So I'm not 100% sure what he's trying to get after. Some of it's kind of confusing. It's like, do you really need to show... Like this guy knocking his kid off a log into the water again and again. What are we getting from that? That just having normal narration wouldn't get. There, there's a bunch of scenes where it's kind of like, I don't know why I'm watching this. But it, it at least had some relation to sort of, I guess, somebody's uh, version of reality. Hmm. And then at the end, there's like that bizarre scene where oh. he's being God. lifted up out of the water. <laughs> In, you know, in sort of the crucifix position while like some, a little flicker of flame comes down to baptize him in fire or something. And I guess my thought was, what the fuck? Are are they, are they trying to represent like his own feeling about what might've happened? But then afterwards it's like, oh, they found him in a dumpster 45 minutes later. Yeah. It's like, wait, wait, what? I... So I was discombobulated, right? It's discombobulated. And then when you compare that to the actual interviews they have with people, it just, to me, I wouldn't say it seems tasteless, but it seems oh, really- Oh, no. You can say that, Toby, because it is. It's like a completely different thing. Because when you actually talk to the people who are involved, including Glenn's son and his- wife or ex-wife. I assume they probably got divorced after he tried to the kill her. The one at the end of the or, dock, that one? Yeah. I mean, those are very difficult conversations, right? And it's kind of strange to have these wacky recreations and a tiny bit of tongue-in-cheek stuff. I mean, they start off very tongue-in-cheek with these guys like mawing down some McDonald's in the back of their ambulance before the whole... I mean, that's the opening scene. Yeah is these two guys sharing Mickey D's in the back of an ambulance. It was all over the place and, and they sort playing of not that in a scratch off game because you know the documentarians I know, pull but, it all together. But Toby, can I just ask you a question about those interviews? Because this is what I just kept thinking. When you talk about tastelessness, 
Yeah. I just kept thinking there's one element that is just kind of ignored in this whole thing, which is like abject poverty. Like there's a lot of poverty here in this community. And I just found myself thinking like we are looking at people who, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff to look at in terms of like the snakes and like the sort of way they run their churches and the folklore, which is a very real thing. Appalachian, American folk folklore. But when you said tasteless, that really rung with me. I just kept thinking of that woman, the ex-wife, like the sitting at the end of the dock, the sort of talking to her. It's like there's a lot of just abuse and poverty that's just sort of like very glossed over. Did you feel that way, too? Yeah. I mean, I don't. So there's a couple of different things going on there. One is, you know, I think you get a sense that they were very, very poor, but I don't think you get a sense of why that mattered. Yeah. In terms of the whole story. And I, I I can talk later, but I, I read a book about this same thing, but earlier. I think the book was written just before the whole snake bite thing happened, uh, but it's got the same people and it's in the same place, but does sort of position things and like the effect that poverty has on the people. The second thing is the interview with the wife. I, I had a real problem with that in that it seemed as though... That was something where they probably should have called a rap on it and tried it again sometime. Yeah. Or decided that it wasn't going to happen because, you know, there's something going on there and it, it it was very disturbing. And quite honestly, just even down to the, like, do you consent to be on camera? She didn't seem like she was really in condition to do that for whatever reason. I prayed for him to die. And the Lord showed me not to do that. Cause that's wrong. That's wrong to pray for somebody to die. <coughs> he said it. He said it poisoning one time, but I didn't. <coughs> Seemed like she was gonna stumble off the dock when she walked yeah. away. Yeah. I mean, I just was anybody wondering like why they chose that location and we just exploited it yeah it all felt very true blood right i mean there was actually footage on a lake at night on a dock i guess there's no mosquitoes there there's actually archival footage in this documentary that was very much no it was i looked it up i I watched the title sequence for true blood again part of the same archival footage we saw was used in the same like sort of like voodoo-y like weird vampire stuff we see the thing of true blood anyway laura bricker you hate snakes. Go. Uh, yeah. So how many <laughs> things have we watched for this podcast? I will tell you, I, I stepped on a snake when I was about four years old with bare feet when I was walking with my grandmother. And I've been absolutely petrified of snakes. Like I can't even walk by snakes when I go to a pet store when they're in like the glass container. I can't even look at them. So I think I covered my eyes more during this documentary than anything else we've ever watched. <laughs> like, I seriously, and then I'd be like, Laura, if you keep looking, it's going to like, you're going to be able to look. And I'm like, I can't look. I can't fucking look. Like, I used to have nightmares about that sequence in Indiana Jones when they like fell into the pit of snakes. And I would, I would, yes. have, I would have like nightmares about that. So I'm like, oh my God. But I don't think I dislike this as much as you guys did because I just, I'm really fascinated by this culture of, worshiping with the snakes. I don't know. I'm just, I'm sort of interested in that period in religion where we had 
the worshiping with the snakes. Like there was a church. I have a friend who used to church hop. She was very interested in churches. And and like back in like the eighties, there was a church near me where the people would be like, I've been overcome by the Holy Spirit. And they would like roll around in the aisles and they'd be like, the holy laughter has taken me over. So I just, I'm sort of interested in that. I, I don't know. I just find it sort of fascinating the way that different churches take on these different personalities. But the snake thing was, uh, it was pretty terrifying to watch on that archival footage. And I think the fact that we had that archival footage really helped, you know, bring, for me, bring this story to life, even though I couldn't watch half of it because I couldn't stand looking at the snakes. And oh my God, when they went out to get the snakes out of the shed, I almost fucking died. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. And that guy's like, well, like the one guy who's there just because like he might have known a little about snakes or something. I'm like, oh my God. I like when I was, and then I'm done with the snake talk. When I was a private investigator, I remember one time I had to go to some trailer park to do an interview and the people went home and I like looked in the window and it was all dark and there was like this huge like glass case with this giant snake and I was like I'm calling those people on the phone. I am not coming back here. <laughs> like, I so I guess we done. know if uh, someone calls uh, pet detective Laura Bricker for a missing snake, whether she's going to take the case or yep. not. Well, it's, it's so interesting you say that, Kevin, because when I was going through my pet detective school, I had a unit on snakes. And when I had my weekly check-in with my trainer, she's like, well, what did you think about the snake section? I said, well, I won't be doing that. I don't know. That. My eyes were closed the whole time. <laughs> That's right. They're That's like, right. well, because they, they had this thing where you could like buy this like electron like this long like the thing you put down your drain when your drain's clogged but it had a camera to find snakes you know what like, they call I, that they call that a snake they That's do right. and i said i don't need the snake because i will not be searching for snakes yeah, i you don't care if someone thinks a snake set. in the house like call some other pet detective Mystery i am solved. all set yeah my friend barbara from the historical society one of one of barbara's children i'm not sure which had a snake that got loose in the house for like two fucking months i'm like no way nope huh. sorry barbara all right, Kevin, carry on. <laughs> this this documentary does something we haven't seen in a lot of documentaries. Jump scares. Oh my God, there were three of them. What did you think of that? I, well, I was scared. I jumped when they had the scene. Oh, <laughs> baby, where, you jumped. Where, where Darlene said that you know the demon came to her and you know, and then the demon jumped at uh, Glenn. Yeah. And he woke up and said, "What are you doing?" I said, "Getting that demon out of here." And he said. You ain't me beat no devil. And I said, yes, I did. And he said, well, call it back in here. And I did. And he came back and got in. Yeah, it was spooky. Went, Here's my real question. Do you think this documentary actually explores, really, whether or not this guy tried to murder his wife with a snake? Or is it about a bunch of other things, it's, and that's yeah. just like the hook? I, you know, it was there were really three kinds of stories happening here. There's the one about the crime there is, you know, the one about his backstory, his life story, and then there's, you know, the stuff with the church and that Pentecostal cultural stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know if it did a particularly good job with any of them, and they didn't quite fit together the right way. I mean, I, I had a sort of a problem with the structure where, okay, you start off with. You know, the discovery of the crime. You would do that in a crime book, right? But then you go on through and you get, okay, and this is what happened, and an arrest, and then the trial, and he went to jail. Chapter two. I'm like, well, what the fuck? Then you, then you get the whole backstory. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. I'm not invested in the backstory anymore. Yeah. Because I know how this ends. Yeah. And then they get to the stuff about the Pentecostal movement, and they don't go in as deep and asking the right kinds of questions that I would have. 
It feels like a, an interesting pairing with actually forgotten women of Juarez because yeah. they took a murder, like one, I mean, one among hundreds, and they start there and then they do this like big zoom out, like layered onion situation where you learn so many things. And I feel like I learned very little about anything in this documentary. But Toby, I mean, to me, one of the big crimes here is we don't really get, I mean, the setup is... Did this guy try to kill his wife with a snake? But there's just so little time spent on whether or not this guy tried to kill his wife with a snake, right? Like, it sets up a promise, and then it does a bunch of other stuff, and it doesn't deliver on any of it. Yeah. I mean, I, the, you get the sort of he said, she said take on what happened that night. And then with this weird thing where the kid shoots him with a, shoots an arrow at him or, you know, yeah. there's sometimes, you, it, sounds, it sounds like you had a dream too, where you maybe watched this documentary. Well, Toby. but there were things where I was like, when would, did that happen? Like there's a thing where he fights and he knocks both his eyeballs onto his nose or something. And, oh, he fights and the other some guy other, and knocks his eyeball out. Says it again, yeah. something else. Yeah. He did it twice. The other time with, with vice grips or Apparently something. Apparently that's a thing. You like punch somebody and their eyeballs fall out. <laughs> happens all the time. And then, um, yeah. But then he like goes home, and then his house is set on fire. And I was like, "Is this supposed to happen on the exact same night?" Like, and he's throwing his kids out the window. He's throwing his kids out the window. He's got blood all over his face. But it wasn't. It just wasn't clear to me that one followed the other. Anyway, I don't know. I mean, I to, to me, the interesting things about this is you you could have spent a little bit of time on his backstory. But what was interesting about his backstory, I thought, was that was the switch he makes from being this you know, basically a a violent criminal guy to becoming this like ultra religious guy. And in his mind, I think he feels absolved of his past sins because of the passion with which he takes up religion. Right. So that's one thing that's kind of interesting is like, how does that actually, you know, how does that play? How does that work? Is that, is that at all legitimate? Is, is it, you know, what's going on there? Another thing that they just touch about just a, very briefly is about how, you know, the Pentecostals, they talk, I, I think they call them hill people in the thing. And they say they lived up in the hills and then they've started to come down into town. And that was, I can't remember if it's the EMT or maybe a cop at the beginning, but that was another thing. And in the book I read about it is is more of a deal is that there's just really this culture clash between the sort of more quote unquote modern people in the town. And then these people who've lived a much more rural existence. And those, that's, those are the Pentecostals and they're, they're very, you know, there's a lot of poverty and you, you don't really hear, I guess you hear about it a little bit, but you know, their worship services go on all night, you know, yeah. like seven or eight hours yep. and, I you know, speaking that. in tongues and snakes and drinking that. strychnine. I didn't hear that. that. Yeah, yeah, we didn't. Yeah. So there's, there's actually, if people are interested in this, in the whole Pentecostal stuff, there's a really interesting documentary called The Holy Ghost People uh, that you can watch on YouTube, uh, which was done in the 50s. There's a little bit of my second novel has to do with with this stuff about like sort of ecstatic religion. So I did some research, which is why I read this book called Salvation on Sand Mountain. So anyway, I, th- I thought there was there was some stuff that they could have pursued 
And the one thing I think they do touch on a little bit is sort of the the generational trauma uh, when they when they talk to his son. A little bit, uh, I would say, a very little bit. A very little bit, but but he, you know, I think he he talks about the difficult relationship he has with his parents. For some reason, they make him do it in a cave. But um, <laughs> and then we see him driving his truck because that's how that, it always that's is. That's a choice. Yeah. Oh, and then the other weird thing is when they they show the guy who's playing Glenn. Is in the cave with like that light, weird light shining on him yes. while he's reading the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> like, what the hell is going Can on? Can I just ask like a real question? Mm-hmm. I don't care who answers this. So, like Toby touched on this, but a huge part of the story and a lot of stories about these like narcissistic evangelical preacher guys is like a lot of times, and this is not like a knock on actual faith and actual religion but a lot of these like figures at the top of like these evangelical churches that do things that you don't understand they're narcissists who are also very bad people we've seen it over and over and over again this guy was abusive he was awful he was violent then he had this quote reformation and becomes this like religious guy And the documentary basically presents it on its face as like, he changed. And I'm like, no, he didn't. He's just channeling that same narcissism and violence and all this other stuff. But now he has more power because he has an audience. I don't know. I don't know who wants to take that up. But I just felt like that was another unexplored thread of how like abusive, narcissistic men, you know, they use reformation and religion to reskin themselves. But it's bullshit. Anyone want to respond to that? Yeah. So what I was thinking about when I'm looking at him finding religion is like, usually we're seeing people in the things that we review. And when we're seeing somebody that's involved in a crime, somebody doesn't find religion until they go to jail or prison. (laughs) And I was like, well, this guy's like ahead of the curve because he's found religion before he gets arrested. So for me, that sort of added a little bit more questionability, like gray area of like what actually happened, because I don't necessarily feel like it's sincere. Yeah, he found religion, but he's still doing all this bad shit. But we're supposed to believe that he didn't try to kill his wife because he found religion before he got arrested. So for me, that was sort of where when I ended this whole documentary, I was like, well, I don't really think I know what actually happened. Like, I didn't come out of it feeling like I had a feeling of like, oh, she definitely got attacked or she definitely made it up, like he said. Yeah, I have no idea. Because, I have literally no idea. But I think that's I didn't even know that was supposed to be a question until the end. Was, that well, was it the was, question. It was a question like, did for he me. murder her with a snake? That yeah, was the whole did, he, did he try to thing. kill her with the snake? And so I think I don't because know. of this sort of, for me, questionable, like, finding God storyline with him, I was like, well, I mean, he found God, but you hear a lot of people that found God still doing some pretty bad things. So anyway, but I have to just say, I love the ending, that last little thing after we have him like floating up into the sky when they're like, and he still is not, or he's still waiting to ascend to heaven or whatever it was. That was like my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Alabama Snake? It's a sort of documentary on HBO Max made by the same people who made things that we really enjoyed. Uh, Some McMillions of us. and Legend of Cocaine Island. Legend of Cocaine Island. Lara Bricker, should people check out Alabama Snake? What do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Wow. I always love going first. 
So, I, you know, you I always th- go first. You'd think you'd be used to it by now, I am Laura. used to it by it's now. Been six years. <laughs> it has been six years. And I'm going to say, I didn't hate this as much as everybody else did. I'm going to give this a mild thumbs up because I found that, yes, there was issues with the way that the storytelling was done. I felt like they did exploit some of the interview subjects that were living in very impoverished areas. But I was just also very fascinated by this whole subculture of the serpent worshiping. And I actually liked the sort of campy setup going into this with the paramedics that respond to the initial crime. I thought it was, uh, you know, I kind of enjoyed the setup. I learned some things. I had to cover my eyes for much of this. But, you know, there was issues with it. But I also was like, we watched so many documentaries. When have we ever watched something like this? That was so like, I just felt like, how have I not heard about this? So Hmm. I think that there are issues with it, but I think there's enough, it's only an hour and a half. There's enough things that are interesting about this, this show that you've got an hour and a half to watch it. Hmm. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Alabama Snake? Uh, I'm a thumbs down. I didn't really like it. What I would like is to listen to the director on a podcast kind of talking about like choices he made and, and reasons why he did certain things, because I think that would probably be pretty interesting because I didn't kind of get it, but it does seem like he definitely makes decisions, right? He There's a lot of decisions made with how things are going to be portrayed and what's going to be portrayed and things like that. And I, I, I'd, I'd just be interested in how that all was thought out. But So basically you just want to see like, what the fuck were you thinking? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but not like, not in the way where sometimes it's just like this thing just like, was Not awful. Mean. Yeah. I'm like kind of interested because whatever it was, I, I don't think I got it. And I just, I don't know. I, it's just a thumbs down. I, I didn't, I didn't get much out of it. Kevin Flynn. Yeah. I'm also a thumbs down. I didn't feel like I understood anything about this, uh, protagonist. I, what was motivating him, what he actually wanted. And uh, I mean, they're just, I, I don't even really know. I think that, you know, they wanted this to be somewhat quirky. It wasn't. They wanted it to be visually interesting. Kind of was. But as far as, you know, a really great story, uh, no. And the final scene is fucking ridiculous. Hmm. I just laughed out loud at all of a sudden. I was, if I were on the fence, I saw that and I just laughed out loud. So that's, this is so fucking bad. Hmm. So thumbs down. Yeah, thumbs down for me too. So I liked Legend of Cocaine Island and McMillions because... Yeah. They were both, hey, get a load of this documentaries, right? Mm-hmm. It was like, hey, get a load of this. You're never going to believe this shit. Like, that is the theme, right? And then it basically is just a yarn, a crazy fucking yarn told in a really creative way with real people doing their own recreations and a lot of, like, fun, stylized. Remember in McMillions, Kevin, they had the woman who worked at McDonald's and they had, like, the flashback and they exactly recreated her outfits and it was just, like, very yeah. cheesy in a good way, kitschy. Like I talked about how great the coffee was in the lobby yeah. and carrying yeah, yeah, the coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I just feel like this story is too high stakes and dark to treat that way. I mean, really, yeah, we're talking about did he or didn't he try to kill his wife with a snake, If that were just it, if it were just some weird guy who maybe or maybe didn't try to kill his wife with a snake, maybe you could tell it that way. But 
this really has very, very uh, much darker and deeper issues at its core. It's about poverty. It's about sort of the Appalachian otherness of these sort of subcultures of this huge part of the United States that we never talk about. There's a lot of violence against women. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of child abuse. And I just don't think it's a fun enough story to treat in this way. I felt people in it were being exploited, and I felt like the story, given this treatment, didn't land. But most of all, I don't remember enough about this documentary because it gave me the feeling that I had a dream where I once watched a documentary about this thing. And that's just tough. It's tough to feel that way about a thing that I watched. Not in a good way. Queen's Gambit also felt like a dream, but in a good way. This felt like a dream in a not good way. So thumbs down for Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Me. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the the week. week. An Australian lawyer has lost his bid to keep his vanity license plate. Peter Levac drives a yellow Lamborghini with the plate LGOPNR, which spells out, ugh, leg opener. Yeah, it does. Despite several legal appeals, New South Wales officials have canceled his registration and seized the tags. They say it's offensive. <laughs> While someone might think driving a half million dollar sports car will open some legs, Lavac says it's just a cheeky nod to his public persona. The, get this, 74-year-old playboy, older than your mom, by the way, Kevin, yeah. prosecuted gangs in Hong Kong and dates much younger fashion models. Good for you, douchebag. If the government <laughs> thought the license plate was so offensive, we're not sure how we got it in the first place. But any ladies' man should know, speed isn't everything. It's all about how you handle a stick. The motion of the ocean, as they say, Kevin. <laughs> so panel, it's Peter... It's not a speedboat, it's a speed car. Peter feels like he needs to get his Lambo back on the road. Give this very fucking old playboy a new vanity plate. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. D-C-H-B-A-G. <laughs> Perfect. DC. Douchebag. All right, Toby Ball, what about you? What, van- what vanity plate would you give this guy? Chlamydia. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin? Yeah, it would be uh, P too slow. Mm. His prostate. <laughs> right, yeah. I would just say ED, because clearly this guy suffers from some really fucking bad erectile dysfunction, right? Yeah. If you got a car like that, yeah. Yeah. All right. So we should probably end on that note before we do. By the way, that guy, he can go fuck himself. Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? So we have a dog of the week this week, Rebecca. Yes. Our regular listener and frequent sounder inner on our various discussion groups, La Brea. This one, I felt like we needed a nice one this week. I had some other nominations, but they were a little more sad. And this was very uplifting. No more dead animals, guys. We need a break. This is our holiday week episode. We needed an uplifting thing. Thank you, La Brea, coming through for us. Um, So she says she wants to preface her story by saying she works with kids and teens on the autism spectrum. One of the families I work with recently adopted a pregnant dog, and they kept one puppy, and they named him Happy. 
The name fits nice. him so perfectly because he's the happiest dog I've ever met. He's the sweetest, gentlest, big-headed dog ever. He's so cute and he is so excited to see mm. everyone. He just wags his tail and lays on his back for belly rubs. So the child is pretty indifferent to the dogs and you wouldn't really think there was a connection between them. On Sunday, the grandfather of the child took him and Happy on a hike. The kid has a history of elopement, and on Sunday, he eloped from his grandfather. Since Happy is such a good dog, he usually walks off leash. Happy took off after the kid. 0.5 miles and an hour later, the kid and Happy were found safe. They traversed through the woods over a couple of fences. Happy stayed with him the whole way. Oh, Happy. He wasn't trained to do this. They hadn't even thought of training him this way. But the story just touched her because she thought it shows how amazing animals are and how we don't deserve them. We don't. Oh, it was wonderful. Being the emotional person I am, I cried happy tears and wanted to share with my CWO family. And she sent some pictures of the dog with his big head. Listen, I have a big-headed, super dopey dog that follows me everywhere. Happy, I'm with you. You are clearly way better than a guy who maybe murdered his wife with a snake. So I love everything about the story. Is that the bar these days? It is. Laura Bricker, people want to pitch to you their dogs to be Cat of the Week, or of course their cats too. How can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And of course, you can also pitch your animals to be cat of the week. It doesn't have to be a cat or a dog at crimewriterson at gmail.com. Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and say, I agree with all of your opinions, Toby Ball. How can they find you on Twitter? Anytime, day or night, at Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and say, how do you live with a woman who interrupts you so often? How can they find you on Twitter? I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. It's okay. They're just reaching out to me and saying that I interrupt you too often. So don't worry about it. You'll never get that tweet. Okay. <laughs> and if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And I strenuously encourage you to join our amazing community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, and that's fine, but the group is awesome. Support this show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You will get the Crime Writers on After Show right now. Plus, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave it to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the very handsome Olivia Burdett. Our executive producer is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the Yoga Loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the teeny tiny little closet in our basement where we keep rattlesnakes just to murder people. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. later. So I was like, I'm going to take the wheelbarrow and get a bunch of wood before the big storm. Well, the freaking latch on this heavy metal wood box broke and I didn't know it. So I had it popped open and I'm putting wood in and stacking it and like fell on the side of my head. And I'm like, yeah, are you okay? I, yeah, I, my head's a little. So if I'm a little goofy, that's why. Yeah. And Ken's just like, oh. Are you I'm accidentally like, going to give this Alabama snake thing a good review now? <laughs> no. I, 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 I could have died. I could have died. You I could have like decapitated what myself. What a shitty way to die that like, would be. Yeah. I know, in the wood box. Mm. Seriously. But what would be, but you'd end up like half of you would be in the wood box and the thing would be over you. <laughs> and there'd be a they lot of questions. Be, there'd be a lot of there'd questions. There'd be questions about time of death because part of me would be frozen and part of me wouldn't be frozen. I got to get Madison Hamburg yeah. on yeah. that. And then pe- people would be yelling at uh, Hugh Grant about like, oh, did he do it? Is he too charming to be a murderer? Madison Hamburg would be secret- secretly taping off Lars' relatives. 
Yeah. Amber Hunt would get her interns to like build a exact scale model of the wood box. Of the wood box. Parker and Yesko make them stick their bodies into it. And Parker Yesko it would be like, being data journalist. Did you do it? Did you do it? Wood box? Did you do it? And the wood box yeah. would be like, No, I did your mother though. It would be a whole thing. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Laura would appear in Ken's head. <laughs> Working out the different clues in the case. Oh my god. Oh. Partners in Crime Media.